Okay, let's go to the Lord. Father, we humbly present ourselves before you. We ask that good might be done by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that Jesus Christ would be known and his glory would be seen and savored and enjoyed and delighted in today. We pray that our study of the tabernacle might reveal riches to us that would minister to the depths of our soul. I pray, Lord, that you'd help me. I know that it's been difficult for me to talk very long with this cough. I just pray for your help, that I would be able to deliver this message by your power. And so, Lord, we look to you now. Be exalted in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, this morning we continue our series, Christ in Exodus. And we've worked our way through the first 24 chapters of Exodus, and we come now to chapter 25. And we're going to be looking at, for several weeks at Christ being our tabernacle. This is the first one, part one today. I want to start with a quote by M.R. DeHaan. He makes this statement in his book, The Tabernacle. God himself was the architect, and every detail points to some aspect of the character and work of the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And in its complete form... It is probably the most comprehensive, detailed revelation of Jesus, the Son of God, and the plan of salvation in the entire Old Testament. Well, that's a pretty lofty claim, isn't it? Wow. The most comprehensive, detailed revelation of Jesus, the Son of God, and the plan of salvation in the entire Old Testament. It's a lofty claim, but I think he's probably right, making that statement. That's why it's not going to be a waste of our time to spend three or four weeks looking at the tabernacle together on Sunday mornings, which we're going to do. Because I hope that we get a sight, a vision of the glory of Jesus through this Old Testament building such that we have not seen before, and it delights our souls. Now, the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus Christ in many, many different facets, as we're going to see. It's also a picture of the sinner's approach to God. We're going to see how the sinner approaches God, and we're going to see how Christ is revealed in this structure. Now, Exodus chapters 19 to 24 deal with God entering into a covenant with Israel. I hope you recall that, that message. It's been several weeks back. Jerome's been preaching every week for about a month. Give me a break. But if you can remember back a month, we talked about the covenant that God entered into with his people Israel. This was a bilateral covenant, meaning there were two parties that were binding themselves with oaths that they were making to each other. Remember that in the new covenant, we have a unilateral covenant. According to Hebrews 8 and Jeremiah 31, God is the one alone who makes promises that he's going to fulfill. The Old Covenant was a conditional covenant. It was an if-then covenant. If you do this, then I will do this, says the Lord. But the New Covenant is a I will and you shall covenant. It's not conditional, it's unconditional to all who are in Christ. But when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the instructions of the law that formed that covenant in the Old Testament, God was also giving him something else besides the law. Sometimes we think that's all it was. He went up to the mountain and he got the law. No, he was getting something else. He was getting detailed instructions on building a tabernacle. You see, God knew they were going to break this law that he was giving Moses up on the mountain. And in order for him to be able to continue to dwell with his people, even though they were lawbreakers, there must be some system by which these sinners could be made right with God. And so the Lord gave them instructions for a tabernacle through which sacrifices were made, and the people of Israel would confess their sins, an ongoing relationship with God could be maintained. So that's what's happening when we come here to uh, Exodus chapter 25 through the rest of this chapter. And this morning, we're going to look at five aspects of the tabernacle. And to make it easy on you, they all begin with the letter P. <laughs> the 
the purpose of the tabernacle, the position of the tabernacle, the pattern of the tabernacle, the portal of the tabernacle, and the presentation of the tabernacle. Okay, let's look at the first one. The purpose. The purpose of the tabernacle. Turn to Exodus 25, verse 8. Here God says to Moses, let them construct a sanctuary for me. The word sanctuary is uh, the same thing as tabernacle. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. You see that? God is giving the purpose. Now, why did they have to go build this building? I mean, why couldn't they just continue with things the way they had already always been? It was because God wanted to dwell among them. And in order for God to dwell among man, there must be a, a means of approach by which a sinner can come to God and sacrifice that must be made so that blood is shed, so that innocent victims are killed, so that sin is dealt with and relationship and dwelling between God and man can take place. And then look at verse 22 as well. Here, God is telling him how to build the ark and the mercy seat, and he says in verse 22, There I will meet with you, from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So here, what do we see? The tabernacle was a place where God could dwell with his people. And not only that, the tabernacle was the meeting place. If a person wanted to meet with God, this is where they went. They went to the tabernacle because that's where God's immediate presence was revealed. There above the Ark of the Covenant, over the mercy seat, between the two cherubim, which are looking down, the Shekinah glory of God was manifest, and it was like a, a cloud that would mushroom up through the top of that tent, that tabernacle, and it would spread out over the whole camp of Israel during the day to give them shade from the sun. And when that cloud moved, the people moved following it, and at night it was a bright light so that if the, cloud, or the glory cloud moved at night, they could follow it because it turned into this brilliant light. So the purpose was to provide a way that God could dwell among men and that man could meet with God. It's a picture of Jesus. Because where else can a sinner meet with God other than through Jesus Christ? Is there any other way that a sinner can approach a holy God other than through the merits of his son, Jesus Christ? No way. It's not possible. Now, when John was writing his gospel... In his prologue in chapter 1, he says something really interesting. In John 1.14, he's talking about the Word. And of course, the Word is referring to the eternal Son. And he says in verse 14, The Word became flesh and what? Dwelt. Do you know what that word dwelt means? It means tabernacled. It means pitched his tent. The Word, the eternal Son of God, tabernacled among men. And he says, And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God tabernacled with men through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the meeting place. If you wanted to get to God, you went to Jesus while he was walking this earth. He was the meeting place between God and man. So God is not to be found necessarily in some temple or some special church building or a mosque or a synagogue or the wailing wall. He's not to be found through Muhammad or Buddha or thousands of Hindu deities, or any other shaman or church leader or spiritual teacher of any kind, the only place, according to Scripture, that we can meet with God is through the tabernacle. And Jesus is the tabernacle revealed. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There's one. Now, what's a mediator? Reconciler, right? A go-between who brings two parties together that were at variance, 
that were hostile to one another. Jesus Christ is the only mediator that God has provided to bring sinners back to him. So there we have the purpose of the tabernacle so that Israel could meet with God, so that God could dwell among them. Let's look at the position of the tabernacle. Where was it? <laughs> well, for this, we have to go to Numbers chapter 2. And we're not really going to read. I'm just telling you where it's at, because we don't have time to read that chapter. And it's actually a little complicated to read. But if you would like to find out where I'm getting the information I'm going to give you, it's from Numbers chapter 2. Where was it positioned? The tabernacle was positioned right in the center of all of the camps of Israel. Like when they would camp for the night, the tabernacle was right in the middle. And there were three tribes that would camp to the north of the tabernacle, three tribes that would camp to the south, three tribes that would camp to the east, and three tribes that would camp to the west. Now stay with me because I want to share something really cool here. You can see an illustration of it up here. The three tribes... To the top of our screen here went under, under the one name Ephraim. The three, three tribes on the bottom went by the name Judah. The three tribes to the left went by Reuben. And the three tribes to the north or the, the right side, they went by the name Dan. And what's interesting, if you read chapter two, you're going to find something that I think is just fascinating. Okay, let me give it to you. <laughs> um, Judah which was to the east. Let me find Judah. Okay, on our picture here, it's on the bottom. Judah was made up of 184,600 fighting men, soldiers. So that's a lot of people. Now, to the, on the other side, Ephraim had 100, let me find it, 108,000. Okay, so this one here has got 184,000 soldiers. This has 108,000 soldiers. What that means is that there's going to be a longer line of tents coming down towards the bottom than there are going to the top. The ones on the left, Reuben and Dan, had almost an equal number of soldiers. 157,000 soldiers versus 151,000 soldiers. So when God looks down on the camp of Israel, what does he see? He sees a cross. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that interesting? And that's not the only thing here. I want to share something else that's really cool. Notice, I will read one verse from Numbers 2. It's verse 2. The sons of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's households. So when they camped, there was a banner that they would put up. Now, this is not in the Bible. What I'm going to tell you is from Jewish tradition. This is not in Scripture. But according to Jewish tradition, they said that the banner for Ephraim was a calf, the banner for Dan was an eagle. The banner for Judah was a lion. And the banner for Reuben was a man. Does that ring any bells with anybody? Go to Revelation chapter 4. <laughs> Let's take a look at heaven and what it looks like. Revelation chapter 4. Let's pick it up at verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. What do you suppose is going on back in the Old Testament? God told him exactly where to camp and how to camp. He, he told him the exact position. And when he looks down, he sees a cross and he sees these banners, a man, an eagle, a calf, and a lion representing the four living creatures in heaven that surround the very throne of God. The tabernacle represents God's immediate presence, his very throne. And this is a picture of heaven with all the Israelites representing all of God's people, a multitude no man can number redeemed by the blood of his son. Isn't that awesome? Now, folks, are you going to be... 
<laughs> are you going to be one of these thousands and thousands and thousands of people in heaven one day? Amen. One time there was a conflict. <laughs> Whitfield and Wesley shared different theological positions, and one time someone asked uh, George Whitfield, do you think that Wesley's going to make it to heaven? You think you're going to see Wesley in heaven? He says, no, I, I really don't think so. He's going to be so close to the throne of God, and I'm going to be so far away that I don't think I'll ever see him. <laughs> well, praise God. The, the, the position of the camp teaches us something about heavenly realities. Okay, let's look at the pattern of the tabernacle. And for this, we need to go back to Exodus 25. Verses 8 and 9. Exodus 25, 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. In other words, there was a model that God was giving to Moses. And he had to be careful that he constructed this tabernacle exactly according to the pattern that God gave Moses. It's very important that he not deviate from God's specific instructions. Look at uh, verse 40 of this same chapter. See that you make them after the pattern for them which was shown to you on the mountain. God is concerned that Moses not go off and do his own thing and get creative or imaginative. Just make this tabernacle exactly the way I'm telling you to do it. Now why? Why was it so important that Moses follow these detailed instructions? Well, go over to the book of Hebrews. New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 9. And let's pick it up in verse 23. Now, in chapter 9, he's discussing the tabernacle. And then he says in verse 23, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. Now appear in the presence of God for us. Do you see what, what the author of Hebrews is saying? What, Debbie? That the um, tabernacle, the holy place made with hands, is a copy of the tabernacle of heaven itself. Exactly. <laughs> so, I, exactly. You know, when you make a, um, you want to make a Xerox copy of something, you put the original. On the copy machine, you hit copy and out comes a replica. Well, God, the, the tabernacle on earth was a replica, but there's an original from which that copy was made. Or like when you were kids, I don't know if you ever made the models of cars where you get this kit, a box, and you have all these millions of pieces and you glue them together and you'd make a replica, a model of the Model T Ford or a Corvette or something and you'd hang it up on your wall and display it. The tabernacle on earth was a model, a copy, a replica of an original. And I'm not exactly sure what that means. Is, is there a, a physical, tangible tabernacle in heaven? Maybe? I don't know. It kind of sounds like it when you read Hebrews 9. I'm willing to just kind of let that alone because I'm not sure what the original looks like or what it is. Whether it's all of heaven or whether there's something in heaven that, that is like a tabernacle, who knows? But we do know that the one on earth was a, um, a picture, a copy of the true one. So that's why it was so important that he make it according to the pattern. God wanted the replica to look just like the reality. So that when we get to heaven, we say, hey, wait a minute, I've seen this before somewhere. <laughs> that was that tabernacle in the Old Testament. And that's the reality right there. Okay, let's look at the portal. A portal is an opening into something. Okay, I used it because it has a P to start the word. <laughs> but what was the portal? <clears throat> okay, let's go to Exodus 17. I'm sorry, Exodus 27. In Exodus 27, verses 9 through 19, He's talking about the court. 
the, the outer court of the tabernacle, and he tells us there that there was a fence around it. It was a fence made of fine twisted linen all the way around so that you couldn't just look on the tabernacle. You would, a fence would bar your access to it. So look at verse 18. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits and the width 50 throughout and the height five cubits of fine twisted linen and their sockets of bronze. Now, do anybody know what a cubit is? <laughs> Basically, it's the distance between your elbow and the end of your finger. And I just measured mine, and mine's 18 inches long. And that's, they think basically a cubit was about 18 inches, a foot and a half. So if this is 100 cubits, it's 150 feet long, this fence that surrounds. Okay, see this, uh, the fence around it? That was 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. Now, just to give you a, a perspective, you've been to a football game, haven't you? Okay. Half of the distance of a football field is uh, 150 feet. So that's how long this fence was. Half of the distance of a football field. Or if you've seen a, a field goal kicker try to kick a really long one from the 50-yard line. I mean, that's, you can kind of get a visual. This here was 75 feet. So half of that distance again. Okay. This fence here was made of fine twisted linen. Linen was white. What's, what does white represent in Scripture? Purity. Holiness. Righteousness. Did you know that God's absolute holiness bars sinners from His presence? They would be incinerated if they tried to get too close to God because God is holy and they're depraved and corrupt. So we have this white fence keeping out sinners from God's immediate Shekinah glorious presence. Notice that in this picture and in the instructions in Exodus 27, there was one entrance into this courtyard. It was a gate. It was fine twisted linen, but then it also had these beautiful colors embroidered into it. It was on the east side. So Judah was camped right to the east and they would come straight out of Judah, right into this gate, opening up into the courtyard of the tabernacle. There was only one entrance. You didn't have four entrances. You know, they didn't have doors on north, south, east, and west. There was only one. If you wanted to get in, you had to go in one way. Does that remind you of anything? <laughs> Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. Not I am a door, or I am one of many doors. I'm the door. If any man comes through me, he shall be saved. Or in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to me except through, or no man can come to the Father except through me. Or Acts 4, 12, Peter preaching before the Sanhedrin said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It points to the one gate that allows entrance into the presence of God. If you want to get to God, folks, don't try going through any other person, any other system, any other religion. You go through Jesus Christ. He is the way. A lot of people say, you know, Christians are so doggone intolerant. Man, they're intolerant. Did you know God is intolerant? God will not tolerate someone coming into His presence apart from through His Son. He's intolerant. He's intolerant of any religion that espouses any other way to him other than through his own son. He won't allow it. We need to beware of being more tolerant than God is. We need to be just as intolerant as God. No more, no less. And so don't worry if people say Christians are intolerant. Just say, well, Jesus Christ was intolerant. Jesus Christ made these claims of exclusivity about himself, that there was no other way to heaven, no other way to God. 1 John 5.12 says, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. We're just being biblical when we tell people that. We're not trying to you know, say we're better than anybody else. We're just saying this is the Word of God. 
We happen to believe that it's true. We've based our lives on it, and this is what it teaches. So there we have the portal. Let's look finally at the presentation of the tabernacle. This one is really exciting to me. Okay, go back to Exodus 26. Do you see the tabernacle proper in the top of your screen? It says badger skin covering. Actually, there were four coverings over the tabernacle, not just one. The first one was of linen, fine twisted linen. The second one was uh, ram's hair. I'm sorry, goat's hair. The third one was ram skins dyed red. And the last one, it says badger skin, but that was the King James Version. It, prob it probably was not a badger. The New American Standard has porpoise. That's probably uh, much more likely that it was a porpoise skin than a badger skin because badgers didn't live in that climate. The King James translators were doing their best with a... Um, an obscure Hebrew word that had a wide range of meaning. It could even mean antelope. It had, <laughs> or mammoty, or, I mean, we don't know exactly what the word was, but I'll go with porpoise because that's what my Bible says, and it's, it's probably a pretty good guess. Okay, so there's four coverings over this. Let's consider them for a minute. The one that the priests saw was white. That was the first one. So when they looked up, they saw a white covering. Over that was spread this goat's hair covering. We could read this if you want to, but if you want, it's all there in Exodus 26. Now, goats in the Middle East are usually black. So this would be a black covering. First a white covering, then a black covering over that. Then you've got ram skins dyed red. Where else do we read of a ram in the Bible? Anything come to mind? Abraham? Genesis chapter 22, remember where he's going to offer up his son Isaac? And there was a ram caught in the thicket, and that ram became the substitute for his son? Okay. White, black, red, purity, sin, substitution for red. And then we come to this last one, porpoise skins. Porpoise skins were a drab, dull, bluish-gray color. Now, they were waterproof because, you know, porpoises. <laughs> and that would actually be, if uh, practically speaking, be very important to have a waterproof covering so that when it rained, the whole thing didn't get wet and soaked and the priests get wet underneath it. So over the whole thing, they put this porpoise skin to keep out the, the, the uh, rain and also it would protect from sandstorms and the sun and all of that. But it was dull, almost ugly to look at. Now, the fence is seven and a half feet high, but the tabernacle goes up 15 feet. So the people on the outside, what are they looking at? All they're seeing is the top half of the tabernacle. That's all they can see. And what does it look like to them? It looks ugly, drab. Nothing, nothing to attract them. Does that remind you of a scripture? Isaiah 53, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look on him or appearance that we should be attracted to him. The external appearance of Jesus Christ was nothing special. Jesus didn't go around with his brilliant halo over his head so everyone would know who he was. He looked like anybody else. He was just one of the Jewish people that he lived amongst. So white, this speaks about the sinless one, Jesus Christ, the sinless one. Black, that speaks about him being the sin offering. Leviticus 9.3 says that the goat was used in the sin offering. The color black associated with sin. Red, that speaks about Jesus being our substitute. The ram skins dyed red. And this last one, this porpoise skin, I believe that speaks about Jesus and his humanity and his rejection in his persecution, in the opposition of people against him. He came to be the servant. God manifest in the flesh, but a servant to the people. Nothing to look on especially. One of us, but inside all glorious, within that veiled body. So the outsider saw this drab-looking box, almost like this long coffin. Ugly, coffin-like death-like. But if you were privileged to be a priest, you got to go through that gate 
And you got to go through the flaps of that tent over there. And when you got inside there, there was nothing ugly at all. There was fine twisted linen making the roof beautiful white, embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet material, and cherubim were embroidered. You saw gold everywhere, a, a, a pure gold lampstand, this gold table upon which were 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel, a gold altar of incense. So the most precious of metals were everywhere to be seen as soon as you went through that flap. And if you were the high priest, you got to go through that other veil one time a year and you were in the very presence of God. This teaches us that the outsider to the Christian faith sees nothing glorious about Jesus Christ. But if you are privileged to be a priest, you get to see glory. We, we talked about that earlier in our opening scripture, didn't we? You get to see glory. I want to show you from the New Testament how th this portrait of the tabernacle is taught in the New Testament that outsiders see one thing, insiders see something altogether different. Okay, so let's let's take a look. First Corinthians chapter two, verse fourteen. First Corinthians two fourteen. A natural man. Do you know what a natural man is? Yeah, unregenerate. He's a man without the Holy Spirit. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You know what an appraiser does, right? He goes out to a house and he tells you how much it's worth. What's the value of that house? This natural man who doesn't have the Holy Spirit can't understand spiritual things because those spiritual things are spiritually appraised. The natural man does not see the value in Christ or the things of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't see the worth of them. He's blind to them. He does not accept the things of the Spirit. Okay, now let's go over to the scripture we talked about earlier this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're outsiders. They don't see the glory. They see this drab porpoise skin. They see this white fence that keeps them out, and that's all they get to see. Because the God of this world, the devil, has blinded their minds. He doesn't want them to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Verse 5 says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, and now he's quoting Genesis 1-1, let there be light, or 1-2. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So something has happened. If you see the glory of Jesus, something happened to you. Now, if, if you really don't care about Jesus, if you could take him or leave him, if you would rather be watching football than hearing about the Lord, if other things are just way more appealing to you than Jesus, well, maybe this has not happened to you. But if you're a Christian, verse 6 has taken place in your life. The Lord has shown His light into your heart. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon. I think it was called um, A Heavenly Light Shown Into Our Hearts or something to that effect. We're not talking about you just being able to figure out on your own intellectual powers what the gospel is all about. We're talking about God taking the initiative to shine not just your mind, your heart. Because your heart is black. Your heart is dark. Your heart can't see. So the Lord is going to overcome that by His grace, His sovereign grace, and make you to differ. <clears throat> And that's why, <coughs> excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified. Now, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. So he preaches the gospel. He preaches Christ crucified. Jews, stumbling block. Gentiles, it's foolish. But to those who are, what? The called. Those are the ones that God's shown his heavenly light into their heart. They're the ones who are called. What? What about them? Both Jews and Greeks. So God has called some Jews. God has called some Greeks. Who does Christ appear to them? Is he foolish? Is he a stumbling block? He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Is Jesus Christ the power of God to you? Is he the wisdom of God to you? Well, then God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Lord has shown his light into your heart to give you an appraisal of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You're a priest. You're on the inside. You can see what others can't see. You need to appreciate that about you. You need to appreciate what God has done for you, that you have this heavenly vision, this heavenly sight. Okay, let's, let's wrap up this message with four different things I want to share with you. I want to share a glorious hope, our sobering question, our wonderful privileges, and our daily duties. Four different aspects. First of all, our glorious hope. Do, do you guys like to go camping? How many? No? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, Esmeralda says no. Josiah says no. Does anybody like to go camping? Okay. Some of us like it, some of us don't. Um, I can understand if you don't like it, because who likes to sleep on the ground with bugs all around in the dirt, right? But I do like being around nature, and that's fun. Anyway, I want to just share with you that God enjoys camping. Because God has been camping with his people for a long time. He camped with his people, Israel, for over 500 years. Then he came in the person of Jesus Christ and he camped for 33 years among them. Then he sent his Holy Spirit inside the bodies of believers and that spirit is camping within the bodies of Christians. And there's coming a day when we're going to be camping with God for all eternity. Let me show you that from Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verse 3. Now here he's describing the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 3. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. Remember that was the purpose of the tabernacle, so that God could dwell among them? Well, here, in the new heaven and the new earth, he says, Behold, I see it. The tabernacle of God is among men, and God is going to dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So God is going to tabernacle among us. Well, let's keep going. Go over to Revelation 21, verse 22. There it says, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So in heaven... In this new heaven and new earth, there is no temple because God and the Lamb, the Lamb refers to Jesus, are the temple. God spreads His tabernacle Himself over all His people and we dwell with God and God dwells with us. And then verse 23, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Holy of Holies, the light came from God's glory. Well, here he says, in heaven, you don't need a temple. God is the temple. And God's going to lighten the city with his own glory. And the lamp is the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice Revelation 21, verse 16. <clears throat> the city is laid out as a square. And its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. So what do we have here? It's length, width, and height. They're all the same distance, 1,500 miles. What do we call that? A cube. A cube. My own understanding of this new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God is it's a, a picture. 
picture. It's a, it's a way of talking about the people of God, the church, the redeemed humanity. I, I don't expect to see an actual city coming down from heaven. I, I expect to see the bride adorned for her husband coming down to dwell upon the new earth. That's just the way I understand it. But what I want you to see in verse 16 is that we have a cube. Was there any other place in the Old Testament where we read about a cube? Something in all directions being the same measurements. The Holy of Holies. It was 10 cubits in every direction. 15 feet high, 15 feet wide, 15 feet long. I believe the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament foreshadows this reality where we have this new Jerusalem, we have this new dwelling place of God with man in which there's no temple, in which God is the tabernacle, where God's glory shines forever. Remember the Holy of Holies where you, you can come into the very presence of God. Well, that's what heaven is. So that's why it's pictured as a cube, 1,500 miles in every direction to show, hey, there's room for everybody. <laughs> 1,500 miles up, wide, this way and that way. So here we have the, the awesome truth that perfect, unbroken communion with God is established. We find the curse gone, man is redeemed, sin is punished, death is destroyed, and we were just talking about earlier in our service, weren't we, about how awesome it's going to be when there's perfect fellowship, when illness doesn't prevent us from focusing on our God when there's no distractions, when our sin doesn't drag us down perpetually, when we have this perfect communion with God. That's what this is representing for us in the book of Revelation. Beautiful, glorious time to come. Do you see it? <laughs> Do you long for it? They're ours. The new heaven and the new earth are ours. So that is our glorious hope. Now, our sobering question what we find from the tabernacle is that God can only dwell with man when atonement has been made, when sacrifice has been offered. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ crucified, we can have no relationship to God. He is the altar, and he's the sacrifice upon the altar. You can believe in Jesus Christ as, your, as a good example, of a perfect specimen of humanity, but that's not going to save you. Your faith and your trust must be in a crucified Savior, one that died for sin. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 3? He explains the gospel, and he says this is the gospel, that Christ died for sin, according to the Scripture. He's a crucified lamb. He's the sin offering. He's the substitute. He's the ram. He's the goat. And so our sobering question is, do we today trust in a crucified Savior? Do we have a living union with Him? It doesn't matter how religious we are. It doesn't matter if you go to church on Sunday. It doesn't really matter even if you've been baptized, if you take the Lord's Supper. What matters is, are you? do you have a vital living connection to Christ where He is your life? Are you like a branch? grafted into a, a vine so that the life that's in the vine is also in you. Do you know the life of Christ to be yours? That's what we're talking about today. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Let's look at our, our wonderful privileges. Christ is only going to appear glorious to us when we're born again. And only the priests could enter through that gate and only the priests could come into the tabernacle. And this is what I wanted to share earlier and I got ahead of myself. So I want to show you from Scripture that if you're a Christian, you are a priest. Or a priestess, I guess. <laughs> but you're a priest to God. Okay, let's look at it. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 5. Now, Peter's writing to a mixed group of Jew and Gentile. And he says to them, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
He's writing to the whole church. He says, you guys, all of you, you're a royal priesthood. And then let's go further. Let's go to the book of Revelation chapter 1. In verse 6. Revelation 1, 6. And he has made us to be a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Notice he's not making any distinctions between them. All the people John was writing to, he says, God has made us, all of us, to be a kingdom. Priests to God, the Father. And then Revelation 5, verse 10. <clears throat> this is part of this new song that is being sung in heaven. Verse 10 says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Well, them, in verse 10, refers to those that Jesus shed his blood for and purchased. That's the church. All the church. And then one final one, Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, I'm not going to get into what the thousand years is. <laughs> it would take about three sermons to do that, but it doesn't matter. The point is that all God's people are called priests. If you're a priest, you are entitled to go into the tabernacle and serve and see the glory that is there. And that's what I want to encourage you to do. This is your privilege. Your privilege is seeing the glory of Christ. You have the privilege of access to Him, which other people did not have. You have the privilege of fellowship with Him. The Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see it. And He's shown you the beauty and glory of Christ. And so it's our privilege to spend time with Christ in prayer, in fellowship, in the Word, drawing upon His life, seeing Him. Those are privileges not granted to outsiders. And sometimes, isn't it a shame to us that we look on those privileges as distasteful duties that we must do, though we don't really feel like it? Isn't that... Oh, boy, that when you, when you really think about it, it's really a shameful thing for us to consider it. But sometimes we feel, oh, I'd rather do this, or I don't have time for to spend time with the Lord. We don't have time <laughs> to go into the tabernacle and enjoy the glory of our God. So I want to exhort you this morning, brothers and sisters, take, uh, take up your responsibilities, actually your privileges, with holy joy. Look forward to them. Cultivate delight in and desire for this time spent with God. And then one other thing, our daily duties. And it really, that goes along with our wonderful privileges. Our daily duties is to take up these privileges and to, and to relish in them. I want to show you how the psalmists would look at their priestly privileges. Just two passages from the Psalms, and then we'll close. So Psalm 36, verses 7 through 9. He writes, the psalmist writes, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the rivers of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Now whoever wrote this, and it does say it's David, must have been regenerate, must have been born of the Spirit. <laughs> because he's talking about how precious is the loving kindness of God. And he's talking about the river of God's delights and coming into and drinking his fill of the abundance of God's house. Those are our priestly privileges. Let's look at Psalm 16. <clears throat> Starting in verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. 
You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Pleasant, beautiful. What was pleasant? What was beautiful? His inheritance. What was his inheritance? The Lord. The Lord is the portion of his inheritance. That's what was beautiful to him. Um, that is what was pleasant to him. He says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me, and indeed my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, <clears throat> I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Do you want eternal pleasures? <laughs> Would you like to experience fullness of joy? It's not to be found out in the world. It's not to be found out in immoral sexual relationships, fornication or adultery. It's not to be found in pornography. It's not to be found in drugs and alcohol. It's to be found in your priestly privileges of coming into the presence of God and staying there and, and enjoying God and being with the Lord and seeing Him and worshiping Him and talking with Him and fellowshipping with Him. Folks, let's take Him up. Let's be priests unto God. That's who God made us to be. That's our identity. Let's live out our identity in Christ. Amen? Lord, we do pray that you would Move all of us in that direction to really revel in our privileges. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes so that we can come into that tabernacle and see the glory of Jesus Christ in a way that unsaved people can't see. Lord, we don't want to take this for granted because it is a, a miracle of your grace. So we give you praise and honor for it, Lord. And we pray that we would pursue you more uh, diligently in our life every day. In Jesus' name. Amen.